This morning's scripture reading comes from 1 Corinthians 15, verses 12 through 34. You can find it in the Blue Pew Bible in front of you on page 961. Again, 1 Corinthians 15. Please stand for the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 12 through 34. Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there's no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testify about God that he raised Christ, who he did not raise if it is not true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says, all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When, he, when all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him. That is, that God may be all in all. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people being baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with the beast at Ephesus? if the dead are not raised. Eat, uh, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. 
right, let me pray for us uh, before we get into God's word. Let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this morning where we're able to gather together as a church. Uh, even though there is no power in the building, uh, it, it's a reminder to us that we gather not as a church building, but we gather as God's people. And we are a people who sit under the authority of your word. And we pray that as we hear it preached, as we hear it taught, as we meditate on it, as we think upon it, that it would indeed be a light upon our path, illuminating our minds and our hearts so that we might know how we can follow you. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So there is a Star Wars film out there called Rogue One. And for those of you who know me, you'll know that I'm a huge Star Wars fan. And this film, Rogue One, depicts the struggle of the Rebel Alliance against the evil galactic empire a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. Now, this galaxy suffered under the rule of the empire, injustice, oppression, slavery. And to keep its citizens in line, it built a space station, roughly the size of a small moon, equipped with a super laser able to blast planets into space dust. And with this weapon in the hands of the empire, its rule would be complete. But the creator of the Death Star designed it with a weakness. And only the design schematic of the Death Star would reveal what the weakness was. So to ensure the destruction of the Death Star, the rebels undertook a mission to steal the Death Star plans. Now, of course, with every good film, the rebels succeed in stealing these plans, but it cost many lives. Every member of the team Rogue One perished. Darth Vader sliced and diced through many rebels, attempting to recover the plans. And the plans eventually made their way the hands of Princess Leia. And a rebel soldier asked her this question, what did these rebels send her? And she replies, hope. Now this film reminds me of our predicament. Now we don't sit under the rule of an evil galactic empire, but we live in a world where sin continues to rule, where sin continues to reign. And we live in a world where it's evident. We see brokenness all around us. Our news feeds show us photos of war's devastation. Ukrainians fleeing their homes, buildings turned to rubble, civilians killed in Israel by rocket attacks, Palestinians fleeing their homes in the Gaza Strip. I mean, a classmate of mine who was ministering in Israel message me that he's unable to leave the country because of the war. But brokenness is not just out there, but it's even closer to home. Some of you struggle with chronic illness, soreness in the joints, pain in your back, a fogginess of the mind, and others of you struggle internally. No matter what you do, you always feel this low-level stress, this frustration, this angst. Exams, assignments, projects, clients, board meetings. Peace eludes you. 
And even in this world, we see that injustice exists. People do not receive fair compensation for their work. Some receive opportunities, while others do not. Now, we don't face a death star, but we face death. Our physical bodies waste away, and eventually, all of us will die. We live in a world filled with brokenness, and we need hope. Now, hope is a plan, God's plan. God sends his son, Jesus Christ, to save us from the dominion of sin. First, he dies on a cross to pay the penalty for our sin. But secondly, he rises from the dead, resurrection. And God uses this gospel message, this gospel plan, to overthrow sin's rule in our lives and in the world. And the resurrection is critical to understanding the gospel. It serves as the basis of our hope that life after death enables us as a people who can live with optimism, with hopefulness. But why? Why does belief in the resurrection enable us to live as a people with hope? Why is the resurrection so critical? And what would make me say that hope requires us to believe in a resurrection? Now, to answer this question, we'll turn our attention to 1 Corinthians that Amber just read, chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Now, as a church, we believe in the importance of the Bible for life. It is the very words of God. So I would encourage you to follow along either in your physical Bible, using the Pew Bible in front of you, or a Bible app. And we'll again be in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Now, the section of text that we'll be in this morning follows another section where Paul explains what the gospel is. In this previous section, Paul explores the validity of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, why we can believe that Jesus rose from the dead. And the primary reason is because there were eyewitnesses, that there are people who witnessed his resurrection. In fact, over 500 people saw Jesus rise from the dead. Now, in this morning's text, we'll be in verse 12 to 34, and we're going to talk about three aspects of the resurrection. Three things for us to consider, to ponder about, to think about concerning the resurrection of the dead. Three ideas, three thoughts. Now, if you're looking at the online or online outline, you'll see that there are three things that we'll talk about, or you can just listen in. First, we're going to talk about the absence of resurrection. The absence of resurrection. And then the second thing we'll talk about is the hope of resurrection the hope of resurrection. And thirdly, we'll talk about the power of resurrection. The power of resurrection. Okay, so first idea, we're gonna talk about this idea, the absence of resurrection. What happens if there is no such thing as a resurrection? What are the effects if resurrection does not exist? What are the implications if people do not rise from the dead? The absence of resurrection means the absence of hope. That without a resurrection, there is no assurance that things will get better. There's no reason for optimism. That an absence of resurrection will only mean despair, trouble, despondency, gloom, 
hopelessness. The absence of resurrection means the absence of hope. But why? Why does the absence of resurrection mean the absence of hope? Now, Paul explains this. He gives us an answer, and he spells out why the absence of resurrection means the absence of hope. Now, the Corinthians had a problem. They believed that Christ had died for their sins and rose from the dead, but they did not believe that believers would rise from the dead. Why? It's because Greek philosophy believed that the body was bad, but the spirit is good. Hence, a body may die, but the spirit would live forever. The body would not. So they didn't believe in a bodily resurrection. And let me indulge myself with another Star Wars illustration, because even if you think about it, Greek philosophy, you can see it in the way that the Force is depicted, because when a Jedi dies, they do not rise again in physical body. They become one with the Force, and they reappear as a ghost. Yoda, Obi-Wan, Anakin, they all return as ghosts. They do not return in a physical body. All right, end tangent. So then the question then is, what does the Bible mean by resurrection? It refers to when believers will rise from the dead, not into bodies like ours now, but into new physical bodies without the influence of sin, without corruption or blemish. Now, since the Corinthians didn't believe in a bodily resurrection from the dead, Paul does a thought of an experiment. What are the implications if there is no resurrection from the dead? What are the consequences? Now, Paul lays out a total of six consequences if the resurrection from the dead is not true. But for the sake of time, I'm going to cover three. Three consequences if resurrection is absent. What are three consequences if resurrection does not exist? First consequence, the absence of resurrection means that the apostles preach a lie, a farce, a deception, a trick. Look at verse 14. It says, and if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are, we are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true, the dead are not raised. So if the gospel is false, then it would be foolish for us to believe in it. So the first consequence of no resurrection is that the gospel is a lie. It is a falsehood. Now let's talk about the second consequence. The second consequence is this, that the absence of resurrection means that sin's power continues to reign over us. Now, oftentimes when we talk about sin, we think about immoral behavior. And it's true, sin is immoral behavior. But the Bible also describes sin as a power over us. It prevents us from doing anything that pleases God. And if there is no resurrection, then the power of sin continues to hold its sway over our lives. Look at verse 17. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. And since we remain under the influence of 
sin, that means ultimately we will incur the penalty of sin, which is death. So first consequence of there not being a resurrection, false gospel. Second consequence, sin's power continues to reign over us. Third consequence. The third consequence is this, that the absence of resurrection, that means only death awaits everyone. Everyone will die, all will pass away, the dead remain dead. Look at verse 18. It says, Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If there is no resurrection, then there is no hope in Christ. Look at verse 19. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. And people should feel sad for us. They should feel sad for Christians because we live a hopeless existence. (coughs) Now you may think to yourself, well, I'm not like those Corinthians. I believe in a bodily resurrection, and that's good. But I want us to think about how disbelief in the resurrection means living without hope. Why? It's because we walk by people each day who do not believe in a resurrection. We play with them, we chat with them, we work out with them, we run with them. And some of you here might not believe in the resurrection. So what does it look like? What does it look like when people don't believe in a resurrection? Let's think about sin. If there is no resurrection, then you have no help to overcome sin. Now let's think about this further. Let's say you grumble, you complain. It's not fair that my English teacher gave me another assignment. I mean, doesn't she know that I have other AP classes that I'm taking? My coach is unreasonable, having us run another set of suicides. And my parents, of all things, want me to take the trash out again. Grumbling, complaint, it continues. And you have no power to stop. You become a broken record, a track that plays over and over and over and over and repeat. And eventually, people get tired of hearing your complaints. They stop talking to you. They stop messaging you. They stop hanging out with you. And all you will become is a grumble, to borrow an idea from C.S. Lewis. A complaint. There is no hope for you to become anything else. Why? There's no resurrection. There's no world in which you can stop your grumbling or your complaint. There's no possible existence where you will stop this grumbling and this complaining and we have no help to overcome sin. So, no resurrection means no help to overcome sin. So let's think about something else. If there is no resurrection, then we have only one shot to live the good life. I was thinking about seeing Alexander Hamilton, but I won't do that. But think about it. One shot to drive that sport car you wanted, one shot to travel to Bali, one shot to eat at that Michelin star restaurant, one shot to learn that hobby you've always wanted. Why? There's no other life to live. If you want to live your best life, 
then you must live your best life now. And that means when you scroll through your Instagram feed, Facebook feed, and feel a little FOMO, fear of missing out, you should feel FOMO because you're not able to travel to those places, eat those foods, wear those clothes, enjoy those hobbies. You only have one shot. Otherwise, you fail to live the best life possibly that you could have and you should embrace your current existence. No resurrection, no hope. The absence of resurrection means the absence of hope. So let's move on to the second idea about resurrection, the second aspect of rising from the dead, the hope of resurrection. What does the hope of resurrection do for believers? The hope of resurrection assures us of God's coming rule. It gives us confidence. We have a guarantee, a pledge, a vow, a promise that God's rule will come. It's on its way. That God's rule advances. The hope of resurrection assures us that God's rule is coming. Now, what do I mean by God's rule? God designed creation to operate according to his rules and instructions. And put another way, if God ultimately is good, then his rules and design for creation is also good. And if we live according to this rule, according to this design, then we will experience flourishing, blessing. But unfortunately, the world doesn't operate according to God's oversight, according to his design. People do not submit themselves to God's authority. But the resurrection says, it will not be that way forever. God's rule is coming. Well, how do we know? The resurrection. Paul teaches us that Christ's resurrection assures us of God's coming rule, that Jesus rising from the dead tells us that things will return to God's control again. But how do we get to this place of rebellion? How do we get to this state? Adam, the first human being, according to the Bible, rebelled against God's rule. And Adam's rebellion against God's rule resulted in our death. Now, Jason mentioned last week that Adam served as our federal head. He represented us. Just as a lawyer represents a client, a senator represents constituents within a state, a father represents the head of the household when he files tax returns, a CEO represents a company, and Adam's decision to rebel against God's authority resulted in our death. Now look at the first half of verse 21. It says, for as by a man came death, And in verse 22, for as in Adam all die. The consequence of rebellion is death, not just a physical death, but a spiritual death, a death of a relationship between God and us. And it's bad news, very bad news. But then there's good news, that Christ submitted to God's rule resulting in our life that Jesus represents everyone who decides to lay down their arms to surrender, and he represents us, that he dies on the cross to pay the penalty we deserve, and then his righteousness, his obedience to God, his life lived in submission to God, his perfection, all of his goodness, 
All of it now is given to us. So that when God sees us now, he sees the perfect life of Jesus Christ. Let's look again at verse 21, and I'll read the full verse for us. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. And I want you to note in that last verse I read, in verse 22, it says, so also in Christ. And that phrase is so important because that means only if you allow Christ to serve as your representative will you experience resurrection. Only if you find yourself in Christ will you reap the benefits of Christ's actions. Now you may be thinking, well, that's kind of odd. But it's actually not as odd as you think that a community of people actually benefit from one person's actions. Think about this. Over 60 years ago, my dad got on a boat. There were no airplanes, or there were airplanes, but it was too expensive to travel. He got on a boat and he sailed from China to California. And he grew up as an immigrant in California. And it was a difficult life. He told me stories of him being bullied for his Chinese heritage. And despite the difficulties of growing up in adult life, he persevered. And his actions gave my brother and myself an opportunity to experience blessing that we never had. That my dad's immigration led to us receiving the blessing of growing up here in the United States. That my dad's actions led to the blessing of my family. One person's actions led to the blessing of many. So Christ's actions lead to the blessing of many as well. That when Christ rose from the dead, all who believe in him, believe in him, benefit from it. And we can expect one day also to experience resurrection as well. Now, Christ's resurrection is not just a benefit, but it's also a sign. It is a signal. It is something that tells us about things that are to come. It begins something. Now, Christ's resurrection begins this movement to restore God's rule to all the earth. There's a word that is repeated in the text multiple times, and I don't know if you heard it when Amber read it, but look at verse 20. It starts there. It is the word firstfruits. It says, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. And then it occurs again, in verse 23, but each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. So what is this term firstfruits? Firstfruits refers to the firstfruits that are harvested in a season. So if you had a grain field, then the first grain kernels you harvested would be the first fruits. If you had a fig orchard, then the first figs you harvested would be the first fruits. And these first fruits would foreshadow the upcoming harvest. And I'm very well aware of this because my mom has a beautiful garden in California. And every year she would tell me that the plums are ready and we would be able to taste the first plums and to determine whether or not this year's harvest would be sweet. And it usually corresponded. Now, for those of you who are not in agriculture, gardening, or farming, let me give you an engineering illustration, okay? You can think of a first fruit as a prototype. 
For example, the very first iPhone would be the first fruit of the iPhone line. Every subsequent iPhone lends its manufacture to that first iPhone or the first Model T Ford. And Christ serves as that first fruit, that prototype of those who rise from the dead. And we as Christians will rise as well. And when does this future happen? When does this occur? It occurs when Christ returns to the earth. Now, not only does Christ return to raise us from the dead, but Christ returns to conquer all authorities over this earth, including death. Look at verse 24. It says, Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. It's as though Christ rigs all this rule, authority, dominion with explosives and demolishes them all. And the last enemy, though, is death. Look at verse 26. It says, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. So after all of God's enemies are subjected to Christ, the last thing to go is death. Now, how does that work? Now, think about it. If when Christ returns, all believers have risen from the dead, they receive their resurrected body, they will no longer die because sin is no longer in their flesh. It does not cause their body to decay. Death will no longer happen. Death is gone. Now, Jesus returns to quell the rebellion on the earth, to return creation under the rightful rule of God. He allows the establishment of God's rule. He's the one who brings it about. And look at verse 27. Verse 27 says, For God has put all things in subjection under his feet, and when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is not expected, look at the word, accepted, who put all things in subjection under him. God is the one who ensures that everything and everyone will bow down to the Lord Jesus Christ, but it does not include God the Father. That's why Paul writes in the SV, he is accepted. He is the exception referring to God. And verse 28 continues. It says, when all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who puts all things in subjection under him, and God may be all in all. When Christ establishes the kingdom of God on earth, he gives the authority of it over to God the Father. Now, while God, the Son, and Father are same in substance and equal in power, each person in the Godhead has distinct roles. That the Son's role is to establish the kingdom of God, and God the Father is the one who rules. Now, under the rule of God the Father, there will no longer be sin on the earth. All of creation will operate without problem or issue. No more natural disasters, no more disease, no more war. That people will finally image and represent God the way that he designed us, both in body and in spirit. Now, the hope of the resurrection should create within us anticipation of God's rule. We should look forward to anticipate God's rule returning to the earth. Now, so does that mean we just sit at home, twiddle our thumbs, stay at home, watch Netflix, and look out the window and wait until Jesus descends from heaven? 
No, I don't think that's the way that we should approach the Christian life because we show our hope in the resurrection by living under the rule of God now. We demonstrate, we show our belief in the resurrection and God's coming rule by conducting our life in a way that pleases Him. Now, in the Bible, we see that God begins to reassert His rule on the earth through the kingdom of Israel. But Israel fails, and this results in their expulsion into a land for exile. And now God demonstrates his rule through a new people, the church, that each of us here in this church display what displays what does it look like to live under God's rule. Now, if you think about it a little bit, you'll also realize that you've already experienced a type of resurrection. And you're like, what? I don't feel resurrected. Think about this. When you came to faith in Christ, you died to your old self, and you received a new self. You put to death the desires of the flesh, and you live according to the desires of the Spirit. But the then question is, do we choose to do so? Do we choose to follow the Spirit's lead? Do we choose to live as new creation, new life? Because we can. Now, what does it look like to show God's rule now? It means that we prioritize the things of God rather than the things of this world. Well, let me give you an example. Because what do you spend your time doing? So do you spend your Sunday mornings, you know, going fishing, catching up on more sleep, maybe studying? And obviously, you all are not doing that because you are present here, even when the power is out, right? That you decide to dedicate an hour and a half of your day on Sunday mornings to worship God and you are displaying the resurrected life. So we covered two aspects of the resurrection already, the absence of resurrection, the hope of resurrection. So let's turn to the last aspect, the third idea, the power of resurrection. So what is the power of resurrection? The power of resurrection is that it transforms us into a hopeful people. That belief in the resurrection changes us, it reshapes us, and we go from being a people of despair to people of hope. It is a grounded optimism that the power of resurrection changes and transforms us into a hopeful people. Now, Paul uses a series of rhetorical questions to describe how resurrection transforms our relationship to the world. It changes who we are. And it changes first our identity. Now, the word Paul uses to describe this change of identity within a believer is baptism. Because baptism depicts the change in identity, that we are no longer identified with the world, but we are identified with Christ. Uh, look at verse 25, or excuse me, uh, verse 29. It says, otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Now, Without a doubt, when you read that, you might be thinking, this is a really odd verse because our church does not practice vicarious baptism. Uh, you do not get baptized here on behalf of your dead relatives so that he or she might experience resurrection. But within the Corinthian church, there may have been people, believers, who have practiced a vicarious baptism adopted from pagan culture around them. And note that Paul does not support or condone the practice, he just observes the practice. And he uses this observation 
to make these comments. That if the Corinthians value baptism, which symbolizes the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and ultimately our identification with him, then why do they not believe in the resurrection? There is no reason to raise someone from the baptismal waters if there is no resurrection. There is no reason to show off this new identity. So the practice of baptism shows that there is an unconscious belief that there is a transformation that happens, a transformation of identity, that they go from a people being dead in sin to a people who are alive in Christ. So resurrection transforms and changes our identity, but it also changes our advocacy, our mission, that it changes us to become advocates for the gospel, a herald, a messenger. And this means that because we are a messenger for the gospel, that we also face opposition. And Paul continues to use rhetorical questions to highlight the risks, the challenges, the dangers of being a messenger for the gospel. Look at verse 30. It says, Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus if the dead are not raised? So since the resurrection of Christ is true, Paul believed in the gospel and worked hard to proclaim it. This is why he's asking, why is he suffering so much? Why is he encountering so much opposition if the resurrection is not true? But it is. And he describes those who oppose him, specifically at the city of Ephesus, as wild beasts, that he fights them off to faithfully proclaim the gospel. So we have to ask ourselves, have we undergone a similar transformation? Do we believe in the power of the gospel, and specifically the resurrection, that we want to identify with Christ rather than the world? Will we be willing to proclaim this identity change to the world through baptism, if you haven't been baptized? And second, do you believe in the power of resurrection that we would become messengers for the gospel, that we would be his heralds? Now, Paul concludes this passage with a series of commands as well, and he commands us to embrace the transforming power of the resurrection. Look at verse 33. It says, do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor as is right and do not go on sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. Now note the three imperatives. Do not be deceived, wake up, do not go on sinning. That if you embrace, if you take on the transforming power of the resurrection, then you begin to distance yourself from thinking and philosophies that disbelieve the resurrection. Now, Paul doesn't mean don't associate with non-believers. What he's saying is don't allow their thinking to cause you to no longer believe in the resurrection. And this prompts him to command the Corinthians, wake up, be alert. Because if you have embraced the power of the resurrection, then you also will not go on sinning. And what does that mean? It means that if you believe in the redeeming work of Christ, then the power of sin over you has been broken, and you no longer live a life that is characterized by sin. Now, let me think about this some more and depict this for you. Let's say, go back to that struggle with grumbling, and you embrace the power of the resurrection, 
you realize that the core of your grumbling and of your complaint is that you do not get what you want, that you refuse to even consider, ponder the possibility that God puts you in this difficult situation for some kind of possible good. An unreasonable teacher, a difficult classmate, challenging work project, a wayward child. But the resurrection reminds you that you died to getting your own way. And after all, getting your own way ultimately leads to sin. That new life in Jesus means that everything you know will work out for good at the end. And what is required in the moment is faithfulness. And you don't know how God will use this difficult situation which you are grumbling about to bring about some kind of change until you look backwards and you think, oh, that's why God put that in my life. And doing this regularly changes you. And in fact, it changes you to become more like Jesus who says, thy will be done. Now to review, we talked today about how hope in the resurrection enables us to live as a people with hope. We talked about three aspects of the resurrection. The absence of the resurrection means the absence of hope. The hope of resurrection assures us of God's rule and how the power of resurrection transforms us into a hopeful people. So as we think about the resurrection of the dead, as we meditate on it, may it change us to a people who displays hope. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the gospel message and what it says about us. That we are sinners saved by grace but also that we can expect and experience in the future a physical bodily resurrection and that gives us hope to live in this day. May you help us to do this well. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.